Welcome to the Alive and Well podcast, where we interview leaders in the health and wellness industries who have amazing insight on how to improve your health and navigate your personal path to wellness. This episode is sponsored by NHC, an online vitamin and supplement store that sells a wide variety of quality, professional, and retail brands. I'm your host, Brittany Adams, and today I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Alexandra Palma. Zandra is a physician with a background in functional medicine, internal medicine, and anesthesiology. Her interest in functional medicine began in college when she studied human evolutionary biology at Harvard University. She wrote her thesis in the field of contemplative care after an apprenticeship with a Zen Buddhist monk who taught her how to integrate mindfulness-based practices into the care of terminally ill patients. Zandra currently practices functional medicine at Parsley Health in New York City. Hi, Zandra. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Hi, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, I think functional medicine is obviously such an important part of medicine, and it's something that is growing more and more, and we're hearing more and more about it in the natural health world. So I'm really excited to have you here just to talk a little bit about that and and what you see on a daily basis as a functional medicine doctor. So would you start by just telling us uh, how you got your start in functional medicine? Yeah, of course. Um, It was sort of, I've had a winding path to functional medicine, and it sort of made sense, you know, if you look back at where I'm from and what I've always thought about and read about and been into, it it completely makes sense in retrospect. I grew up in Colorado, Mm. um, where people, you know, already are a little bit woke to (laughs) (laughs) alternative forms of care, and um, I studied, I uh, went to college at Harvard and studied human evolutionary biology, which... um, very much asks questions in the same way that functional medicine asks questions. You know, if you study biology, you kind of never ask why. If you study evolutionary biology, you're always asking for, you know, the reason that the phenomena we're seeing developed. And, you mm-hmm. know, the, the reason that, that you know, a small waist and big hips are adapt- adaptive for female humans. Um, and same thing with functional medicine. And functional medicine, we're not just concerned with getting a diagnosis and then treating to that diagnosis, we're, we're always asking like, why, why, well, why that, then why that, then why that? And we're always trying to get one step further back in the sort of tree of how, you know, physiological uh, changes that we see came to be. Mm -hmm. So it it made a lot of sense from, from early on. And I was always reading about um, kind of topics in science and medicine. I, I, you know, I knew eventually I was going to be a doctor. I was always reading around topics of, um, you know, topics like neurobiology and hormones, endocrinology, and, uh, you know, interaction with the environment, which is very evolutionary biology, and um, nutrition, and cognition, and genetics, uh, sort of all these themes that pop up in in functional medicine all the time. Um, And then after college, I actually took a couple years out. So for three years, I didn't do anything related to medicine. I was a, a writer and an actor in Los Angeles, um, which wow. is a wonderful, yeah, it was a wonderful, complete diversion from from anything academic. Mm-hmm. And then I went went uh, back to the East Coast for medical school. I studied at Columbia, um, which was wonderful. And they kind of let me, they let me do some really cool things. They let me do like a four-month apprenticeship with a Buddhist monk where I sort of we saw the dying patients in the hospital, the palliative care patients, and I sort of became more attuned to 
um, the, the full treatment of a patient in, in a spiritual sense instead of just a medical sense. So kind of everything was, was grooming me <laughs> to come yeah. to this field that mixes all these different things together. Um, and then I trained in uh, internal medicine at Maimonides Hospital and, and anesthesiology at Montefiore Hospital. Um, and I loved both of them. And then around this time, I was, I was kind of realizing that functional medicine is something that I could do with my life. And maybe it was what I wanted to do more than either of the other two things. So I, I left and trained for another year with the Kresser Institute, and that was in functional medicine. Um, and then after training with the Kresser Institute for, the year, for a year, I started working at Parsley Health. So it's a clinic that's all functional medicine um, and primary care. And we're sort of... I think we're sort of the healthcare practice of the future. Everybody's young and excited and changing the world and, and uh, we're just doing it right. Like all the problems that I kind of was disappointed with, you know, the hospital system and conventional medicine with for so long are being addressed by Parsley. And I, I just think we're, we're doing it so well. We're doing it right and we're trying to change the world. Yeah, that's incredible. I yeah. really love... Uh, the thing that I really like about functional medicine is that they do really look at the whole person and, you know, really looking to see, you know, okay, you have this problem, but why? And, and what, are, what are the deeper issues going on? Um, so can you explain a little bit, uh, for some people who may not know what functional medicine is, can you explain what it is and, and just kind of what, uh, what goes into it? Yeah, of course. Um, so functional medicine, you can basically think of as causal medicine. I actually wish I could, I wish I could change the name of it. <laughs> I'd know how many people are listening, but if we can just all agree that we'll call, yeah. it, call it causal medicine from now on, that would be great. Um, because that, that kind of explains a little bit more than the word functional is kind of a, a little bit of a misnomer, but it's causal medicine, meaning that we're really interested in, in investigating the root cause. So mm -hmm. we want to know the root cause of chronic diseases um, and we look at it a little bit differently than the conventional model. So the, the conventional model sort of stops asking why when they get to a diagnosis. So, you know, they'll ask why a certain number of times. So this person has high blood sugar and is losing the feeling in their hands and feet. Why? Because they have diabetes. That's the conventional model done. They have a diagnosis, diabetes, and they're going to treat diabetes um, with, you know, a number of great therapies that we have available, insulin. Um, you know, hypoglycemic agents, pills for, for diabetics, diet, lifestyle changes. Um, and that's all well and good. But in functional medicine, we say, well, why did the diabetes develop? Um, and for type 2 diabetes, uh, you know, everybody's known for a long time that type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. But functional medicine doctors are just realizing that type 2 diabetes is looking like an autoimmune disease in 60% of the cases as well. So now we're saying, okay, why did the type 2 diabetes develop? Well, it looks like an autoimmune cause. Okay, well, why? What caused the autoimmunity in the body? Well, it looks like there was some sort of breakdown at the gut barrier um, that allowed uh, macromolecules to get into somewhere where the immune system could see them, cause molecular mimicry, and cause this autoimmune attack on the pancreas. Okay, well, why did the gut barrier break down? Oh, it looks like the microbiome was altered and wasn't intact. There weren't enough short-chain fatty acids being produced. So we ask why and why. We're that five-year-old who just, you know, you explain something to the five-year-old, and he's like, but why? And you're like, well, I don't know, because the sea is blue, so the sky's blue. He's like, but why? You know, we just keep asking why um, until we get enough information to treat root cause. And I think functional medicine is really frequently confused with 
complementative complementary and alternative medicine um, or holistic health, which are two movements that kind of um, were new paradigms in medicine within the last probably 50 years that uh, changed the way that people treat patients by mm -hmm. including a number of therapies that are not from the conventional model that might be sort of East meets West or maybe from other you know schools of thought. Um, but functional medicine is very much about the why. It's very much about the workup. And a lot of functional medicine doctors are trained in alternative therapies, so they will suggest both kind of uh, conventional and alternative therapies when we get to the treatment stage. But the functional medicine part of it, that semantic part, is talking about how we investigate and how we think of the disease process. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of more of a paradigm shift than a change in treatment strategies right yeah mm -hmm. and I would imagine um, the treatment strategy and even just the diagnosis process would take a lot longer with functional medicine just because it seems like a whole lot more goes into it than as opposed to you know traditional medicine is that is that true um, it depends on the condition some things uh, some things you can investigate some things because because the treatments are so well tolerated for some things, you can start treating before you have an answer completely. Mm -hmm. Because you know the treatments, a lot of the treatments we're using are, are very low side effect, um, especially if you're not using a pharmacological treatment, right? If you're using a medicine, every medicine comes with a host of side effects. Every medicine has its has its trade offs and its drawbacks. You want to be really sure you need that medicine. But if you're using, um, you know, a really well tolerated intervention like um, uh, botanicals to heal gut permeability, going back to what we were just talking about. Um, things like, uh, you know, slippery elm and cat's claw and quercetin and glutamine and aloe and, and licorice without the, the active component in it. You know, those things are generally really well tolerated by patients. So you can kind of say, oh, we'll just use that before we actually get the test results back and figure out if you have intestinal permeability. Or for patients who, you know, don't ha have the resources to kind of meet us meet us you know wherever all the all the third party kind of expensive testing is we can just treat empirically mm -hmm. for some of those patients so, so you know some of the workups longer and some of the workup we can we can get a head start without doing the workup or you know save it for later right yeah that makes mm -hmm. sense so what are you kind of did talk about um, some of the treatments that you typically use what are some other treatments that you usually use in in functional medicine um you know, in functional medicine, in, in functional medicine, we're seeing patients every day as their primary care provider. So it's it's literally every treatment under the sun that you can imagine. As So I'll, I'll go back to the analogy I was using of the diabetes patient, right? We're trying to find the root cause of the diabetes and reverse the root cause and ideally reverse the, the, uh, the autoimmune process and the disease process so we can maybe lessen the pharmaceutical drugs that we have to use for that patient. But you can't not give an insulin dependent diabetic insulin right so we're mm -hmm. still using we're still using the band-aid as a bridge while we can ideally reverse the disease but we still need the band-aid there's this there's this old um this old thing in functional medicine that uh you know if your foot hurts and it's because you have a rock in your shoe you can give somebody advil and maybe it'll help the pain or you know an opiate or whatever it'll, it'll help the pain from the rock in the shoe but the best treatment is to just take the rock out of their shoe um, so often we find ourselves taking the rock out of their shoe, which would be sort of analogous to the functional medicine treatments we do to reverse 
the root cause. Um, but we also need, you know, need whatever the pain control is too, right. because some diabetics are going to die if they don't get insulin, right? right you have yeah. to use that Band-Aid. Yeah, absolutely. So to shift gears just a little bit, um, I know that breath work is something that you've recently um, done a little bit of um, exploring and, and research mm-hmm. on. Can you talk to us about the science behind how breath work works? I can, and it's really fun. It's actually, so this is actually not something I really learned in my functional medicine training, and it's not really a functional medicine topic. This is actually, I can explain the science of this because I have a really strong background because I studied anesthesiology. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of my explanation here is, is kind of basic physiology, but comes from the study of anesthesiology, and it was kind of anesthesiologists and old old school physiologists very early on who figured all this stuff out, and they're really the master the masters of these physiology uh, you know physiology tricks in the acute setting. So mm-hmm. anesthesiologists really you know know all about this, and and really any doctor should be able to explain this to you, but they might have to do a little bit of remembering. Mm-hmm. But uh, but um, so breath work. Is a, is a group of practices that, um, you know, some are more like from yogic traditions and some are more secular, but basically it's about 20 minutes to an hour of kind of sustained rhythmic breathing. Um, and it's not the same as deep breathing. So we know deep breathing has, has certain medical benefits and physiological benefits. We know it can lower your stress hormones. We know with the, even within a few seconds to a few minutes, it can lower your, your blood pressure. It can put you into a parasympathetic state, so more of the rest and digest uh, state of your autonomic immune system, but that actually works in a, in a quite opposite way to breath work. So breath work is the sustained rhythmic breathing. So it's a lot of exhales. Um, and people who do breath work will describe different sensations. But they all kind of are describing the same thing. They'll describe tingling sensations all over their body. They'll describe kind of feelings of clarity and alertness. They'll describe feeling a, an increased sense of mind body connection. Some will just describe emotional purging, purging and, and, um, feelings of, of sort of awakening. Um, and I'll kind of take a deep dive with the science, uh, of, of the science of this with you. And mm-hmm. basically all of these will be described. So remember these almost as though they're symptoms, right? Tingling sensations all over the body, feelings of alertness, um, increased mind body clarity, emotional purging, awakening, um, feeling a little bit high, right? So if those are symptoms, I'll describe them from a, from a very scientific point of view. Um, and you probably remember that when we inhale, we take in mostly oxygen. When we exhale, we're getting rid of carbon dioxide. Do you remember that from mm-hmm. just kind of, yeah, basic school stuff? So carbon dioxide is an acidic molecule. That's why, you know, like a, a soda is acidic because it has carbon dioxide pumped into it. And so it has like a very low acidic pH. Um, so when there's more carbon dioxide in our blood, our blood is relatively more acidic. And when there's less carbon dioxide in our blood, our, our blood is relatively more basic. So when we're breathing very quickly, we tend to actually exhale more air than we inhale. So we're getting rid of CO2 more than we're taking in oxygen. So we're getting rid of a lot of CO2. And when you get rid of CO2, now we have less of the acid in our blood. So our blood becomes more basic, more alkaline. Our blood shifts higher on the pH scale. And this is a state called respiratory alkalosis. Alkalosis meaning alkaline or basic Mm -hmm. and respiratory because it came from changing our our breathing rate and our breathing depth. Um, So when we're hyperventilating like this, we go into the state of respiratory alkalosis, a couple things happen. So the first thing that happens 
is a change in how the calcium ions floating floating around in the blood appear to our body. So usually they just float around in the blood and they're available for different uses by our neurons and our muscles. But the calcium ions actually, when we go into some kind of alkalosis, some kind of uh, more basic pH blood state, um, the calcium ions go into hiding. So they, they bind onto this big protein called albumin and they're not available for our body to use. So our body starts seeing uh, a false low calcium state, a false transient low calcium state. So it looks like, uh, so the short-term symptoms that you have look like those that you would see in a patient in a clinical setting who had low calcium from something else. Hmm. Um, so what starts to happen is it manifests as um, tingling sensations, which we talked about, you know, that's something that people experience all the time, smooth muscle contractions, um, increased muscle tone and skeletal muscles. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, you know, done any kind of rapid deep breathing or been in a Kundalini yoga class, but I've been there with friends a couple times and their mouth just freezes. They can't move their mouth anymore. And it's always <laughs> really <laughs> funny. It was always really funny to me because I, I actually know what's going on. Um, and then, you know, the high feeling can be explained because as the blood pH decreases, um, the oxygen delivery to our tissues um, actually, sorry, as the, as the blood pH increases, as, mm -hmm. as our blood becomes more basic and more alkaline, the oxygen to delivery to our tissues actually decreases. So this is called the Bohr effect. This, uh, this old scientist in the early 1900s, Christian Bohr, figured this out, figured this out. So it's called the Bohr effect. Um, and basically within one minute of hyperventilating, uh, the vessels in the brain constrict and it reduces the blood flow and the oxygen delivery in the brain goes down by 40%. So this explains wow. the euphoria, um, the feelings of connection with your body, the well-being, the feelings of well-being. Um, so a lot going on there. And then you've got increased firing of muscles, increased firing of neurons. Um, and you've also got increased firing of neurons in uh, the peripheral nervous system and a part of the peripheral nervous system called the autonomic nervous system autonomic meaning automatic it, it functions by itself right mm -hmm. and this is the part of the nervous system that innervates different organ systems it innervates smooth muscle and it also releases epinephrine which is kind of what we call adrenaline um, kind of colloquially so we're releasing all this adrenaline now just from hyperventilating and what happens is that that adrenaline rush was found to dampen um, inflammatory activity in the immune system hmm. yeah Wow. So we're actually modulating our own immune system just by causing that alkaline shift in our blood by hyperventilating. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and that makes yeah. so much sense about um, carbon dioxide in the blood and how that would make it much more acidic. I've, I've never really thought about it that way, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's the sort of stuff anesthesiologists think about all day yeah. when, they're, when they're ventilating people. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. So um, how does breath work actually help your immune system? I know you, you did touch on this yeah. a little bit, but can you explain how that works? Yeah, I can. Um, so this is actually a pretty recently discovered phenomenon. So we used to think that the immune system, especially the, the, the part of the immune, immune system called the innate immune system, was not... Um, couldn't be changed by, you know, conscious thought or activity. Um, and it was really this study out of Yale Medical School in 2014 that first uh, noticed this connection between uh, breath work and being able to actually modulate your innate immune system. So what they did was they had a, a, a subject called Wim Hof 
Have you heard of this guy? No. He's also called the Iceman. Um, he'll, you know, do things like hike the Himalayas in his boxer shorts barefoot. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he (laughs) trains his body. Yeah. (laughs) An amazing guy. He sounds like an amazing guy. Um, trains his body to withstand these environmental extremes. And a lot of how he does it is by he invented different breathwork practices. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they took a bunch of subjects and they gave them one day with Wim Hof, not very long at all. He taught them some breathwork exercises and then they had a control group who didn't, you know, who got maybe fake breathwork exercises. Um, and then, you know, they took the two groups of people and they gave them an IV. And in this IV, they put bacterial toxins. So toxins from bacteria that are toxic to us, they, they mainlined them. They gave these people, um, you know, toxins straight to their blood. Hmm. And the people who had learned the breathwork and practiced the breathwork, um, they had less pro-inflammatory activity and more anti-inflammatory activity in their innate immune system. Wow. Um, so it was really the first time we've ever seen voluntary action changing the response of the innate immune system. So it's a, it was a big deal in science. Yeah, that's incredible. So mm-hmm. what would what would happen then to the toxins? Um, you know, the, the, the toxins kind of just become processed by the body and flushed out in a normal time okay. course. It's mm-hmm. just that the people probably who had less inflammation in response to the toxins mm-hmm. felt a lot better. Yeah. You know, they yeah. might, the people who didn't have, the people who had more pro-inflammatory activity probably spiked a fever, yeah. you know, may have felt like nauseated and then muscle achy and the people probably felt a lot better who had less pro-inflammatory activity and had more anti-inflammatory activity so the breathwork people probably just just you know wore the toxins a little bit better yeah yeah that's incredible that's really cool so Mm -hmm. how does stress actually affect our health how do you suggest um decreasing that stress yeah well the you know the first all these systems are connected and and this is something that functional medicine very strongly believes and we look into all the time that that all the body systems are connected but the first stop on this on the perceived stress sort of train is the adrenal glands the 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 part of the body that actually makes the stress hormones Mm -hmm. um both the short-term stress hormones and the long-term stress hormones and um we have a different kind of stress than we used to have in our modern lives right we have these Uh, we have these little intermittent constant chronic stressors, right? So our stress hormone system was made, you know, it, it serves a purpose and it's good. It's made so we could run from a lion. We were made to get really stressed out when we saw a lion. Um, you know, our stress hormones surge in our body. It sends the blood to our skeletal muscles so we can run. It mobilizes sugar from our from our from our liver so that we can you know feed our skeletal muscles it shuts down our digestion so we're not using blood to do that instead we're using it you know for our cognition for our strength and and it basically puts into action this fight or flight response that allows us to hopefully get away from that lion Mm -hmm. but if you're having this flight or fight or flight response five times between the moment you wake up and the time you get to the office because you spilled some coffee on your shirt and now you're late for work and then you forgot to call the babysitter and then you know you're you're basically chronically activating the system um, that was meant to mobilize sugar Mm -hmm. and take energy away from repair and resting and digesting. Um, And now you're mobilizing sugar, taking energy away from repair, resting, digesting, and that's putting a lot of stress on the body, as you can imagine. So um, 
you know, from that response from one endocrine organ, the adrenal glands, basically puts stress on all the other endocrine organs and puts stress on every other organ and every other organ system. And then, and perceived stress is actually one of the main stressors. So there's, you know, there's different kinds of stress that we talk about in biology. There are stressors that are just environmental stressors. You know, your body can be stressed because it doesn't have enough calories. Your body can be stressed because it senses a change in how many calories are coming. You know, you're eating less and less calories every day and it senses that you may be going into a famine. So that we call that stress as well, but perceived stress, actual psychological stress, is one of the four main kinds of stressors on the adrenal glands themselves, on the stress hormone system itself. And so to, and, that, and that's the most modifiable one. You know, we can't always modify our environment, but we can absolutely modify our, our perceived stress. You know, right. the, best, the best way anybody's figured out how to do it and that people have been doing it for, you know, thousands and maybe thousands and thousands of years is meditation. Um, a meditation practice will not only manage your stress, but teach you how to kind of get a second level on that stress um, and just allow you to tolerate, you know, normal stressors a lot better. And then taking time for pleasure and play is extremely important. New research comes out every day about how, how important it is to have pleasure and not just pleasure, like a sense of play, like actually, um, you know, doing activities for, you know, no outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people are really good at including that in their lives. And some people have to actually plan to make to make space for pleasure and play and say, you know, on this hour on Saturday, I'm going to do something that is not a goal-directed activity. Um, I'm really good at it, so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> I get enough pleasure and play. Um, and spending time with loved ones and then spending time in nature turns out to be a huge, um, a huge stress reducer. And it, and it is very healthy for the body to just get a little bit of time, of time you know, outdoors each week. And... I live in New York and all my patients live in New York or most of them live in New York anyway. And that's not always possible, but even getting into a park mm-hmm. and spending some time in the sun every week can go a really, really long way to mitigating the effects of that stress on our bodies. Yeah, I bet. So uh, you had mentioned before a little bit about how breath work helps our immune system. And I know that breath work can be especially beneficial for people with autoimmune diseases. Um, can you talk a bit about that and how autoimmune yeah. disorders develop too? Sure, yeah. So the the breathwork autoimmune connection is, again, kind of following the results of that same study. Um, autoimmune disease kind of, uh, you know, the progression of autoimmune disease has so much to do with that part of our immune system, the innate immune system, that this 2014 study found that we can actually modulate using the breathwork. So breathwork is going to be really good for those autoimmune people. Um, as far as how autoimmune diseases develop, um, there's been a ton of research lately, and it looks like uh, a lot of autoimmune diseases, if not most autoimmune diseases, kind of start out with some breakdown of the gut barrier. And I know that sounds really funny, but I don't know if you've you've probably had people on your podcast talking about leaky gut or increased intestinal mm-hmm. permeability before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so the pathogenesis here um, is is that the gut, you know, if you think of the gut lining as sort of our barrier to the outside, but inside of us, right? Our skin's the barrier to the outside. Um, it's a critical part of our immune system. It keeps the outside out of us. It keeps the inside inside us. Um, and the skin's connected to the GI lining at the mouth and the anus. And the GI lining and the skin look a lot like each other. Um, just one's, you know, it's, we're a tube within a tube, one's inside, one's outside. And so anything we put in our mouth 
is still supposed to be outside our body, right? It's inside the donut hole of the tube. It's still supposed to be foreign to us. Um, and our gut lining is sort of gated with these little gates that open and close. And they selectively allow small molecules to come through to the next layer of tissue inside the gut. Um, but what they're not supposed to do is get stuck open. And they're not supposed to be open so much with big holes that they allow large molecules through. Um, when that happens, we call it increased intestinal permeability or le leaky gut. A lot of people say leaky gut colloquially. Um, and more and more of my patients will know what this means when I say it to them. They're just, you know, they're reading and, and, and the, the news is out there. Leaky yeah. gut's a thing. <laughs> yeah. so, so when we have this picture of increased intestinal permeability, it's not only a problem because we're having these molecules that should be foreign to our body coming through and getting into our body, like into our bloodstream. They actually get through to the next layer of tissue, which is right adjacent to that gut lining. And that's where 70% of the immune tissue in our body sits. So it's most of the lymphoid tissue in our body. So we're basically delivering these foreign macromolecules directly to our immune system. And our immune system gets confused because you can eat a piece of chicken and say that chicken really looks to your immune system like thyroid. It's called molecular mimicry. Mm -hmm. Your immune system says, hey, that kind of looks like thyroid. I'm going to attack the thyroid. And suddenly you develop an autoimmune thyroid condition. Mm -hmm. Or it says, hey, this piece of bagel looks a lot like pancreas. I'm going to start attacking the pancreas and give you a diabetes type of picture. Or, hey, you know, this, this you know, cup of soup looks like the sheath around a nerve. I'm going to start attacking the, the myelin sheath around a nerve. And, and you may develop something that looks like multiple sclerosis. So these, we see these autoimmune pic, uh, pictures develop when there's increased intestinal permeability. We see multiple ones developing at a time. And we also see insensitivities developing and allergies developing in the, very much in the same way from the same molecular mimicry um, picture. And there are some people who are just more susceptible to that developing. So for some people, leaky gut's going to be um, a, a much bigger hit than to other people. And we can determine that with genetic testing. We know the genetics of, you know, you, you are going to be more likely to develop an autoimmune disease with leaky gut than you are. We run these tests for celiac disease on most of our patients um, at Parsley Health will run the genetics for who's highly susceptible to developing celiac if they develop a leaky gut picture. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Same thing can be done with type 2 diabetes. Same thing can be done with a lot of, a lot of autoimmune diseases. Yeah, that makes sense. So how could somebody um, prevent an autoimmune disease or, you know, work to prevent it um, in taking yeah. care of their gut or, or just what are some yeah. tips that you could give people? Yeah, well, they can have genetic sequencing to find out if they are one of those people who is, you know, more susceptible if they do have a hit, like leaky gut, more susceptible to develop it. Mm -hmm. um, and so they can stay on top of, you know, stay really on top of it from a preventative side, but also can just prevent that leaky gut picture from happening. And we know that the biggest, biggest, biggest culprit is gluten. This mm -hmm. is not just for celiac people, not just for gluten insensitive people. We know that anytime you put gluten next to gut barrier in a human, in a mouse, even in a petri dish outside of the body, the gluten's going to make holes in the gut barrier. So, you know, the biggest thing to preventing leaky gut is eliminating gluten. Mm -hmm. There are some people who don't have those genetic susceptibilities who are really tolerant to gluten and who will never have to worry about it. So, you know, you can, you can do the genetic sequencing first, or you can just kind of avoid gluten knowing that it will lead to a leaky gut picture. And leaky gut's not really good for anybody. Um, but there are some people who are very particularly vulnerable. Um, there are other things, you know, 
other things can cause leaky gut. Alcohol can cause leaky gut. An imbalance of good and bad microbes, um, you know, good and bad is like, I'm saying this with air quotes right now, but an imbalance of the kind of bacteria that feed our gut lining and the kind that, you know, may just take up space. Um, and, and normal aging causes leaky gut as well. So, you know, it's not, it's the, the gluten thing isn't the only piece of it, but it is the biggest trigger. Yeah, absolutely. What are some other ways that people could, you know, protect their gut besides, you know, just uh, avoiding gluten? Are there any, um, you know, supplements or different types of foods that you'd suggest? Definitely. So probiotic is like an easy supplement that is going to seed your gut with good bacteria. Um, And then people, most people know what a probiotic is. And probiotics are great for, I mean, you know, really great for anybody, but especially except unless they have very certain issues and pathology in the small intestine, but um, really good for most people, especially people with chronic immune activation, with allergies, um, you know, dealing with, with any kind of chronic disease, I would suggest, you know, probiotics for almost everybody. Um, But then you don't just have to think about the probiotic. You have to think about the food that the little guys eat, right? Because we're seeding the gut with bacteria, um, but then they, they all eat different different kinds of foods. So different species like different kinds of foods. And it looks like it's not just the number of bacteria um, in our large intestine that supports us. What's way more important than the number of bacteria is the diversity of the species. And so you have to feed them all different things because that encourages different species to grow. So it's really um, getting enough prebiotics. So prebiotics are usually different kinds of fermentable fibers that our body doesn't digest. They make it all the way down to the large intestine. And so the bacteria eat them and they grow and thrive. Um, they can be things like resistant starch from potatoes and sweet potatoes, especially if they're cooked and cooled or plantains. They can be things like fructooligosaccharides from onions and garlic and leeks. Um, they can be different sorts of resistant starch or, or uh, not resistant starches, fermentable fibers that you can add as supplements. Um, but basically getting a wide variety of plant foods in there is going to be the best for the diversity of the species. Yeah, that's great. Things that you don't usually eat, you know, vegetables that you don't usually eat, try to eat those. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for some people who might actually have an autoimmune disease and are struggling with it, what are some tips you could give them to help manage their disease? Yeah. Um, If I had an autoimmune disease, if I were diagnosed with an autoimmune disease today, the first thing I would do is stop eating gluten forever. Mm -hmm. I should get rid of it. And, you know, it's unfortunate and it's, it requires some, some change in your habits and your lifestyle, but, but because autoimmune disease is so difficult to manage and it's such a progressive thing, uh, and you want to keep it from progressing, I would say gluten has to go forever. If you're, if I were autoimmune, that's what I would do. Mm -hmm. Second thing I would do is I would go get a functional medicine doctor right away um, because this is a progressive thing, right? You want to, you want to be able to stop it in its tracks. You want to nip it in the bud and you really want to not just manage the symptoms you already have, but slow the progression. So I'd start working with somebody right away, you know, have some allies, a doctor and a health coach and people who really understand this disease process. Um, And the third thing I maybe would do, I would definitely, and your functional medicine doctor would do this with you. Um, I would definitely do some sort of protocol to heal the gut entirely. So not just leaky gut, I would definitely, you know, give, I would take some medicines to heal leaky gut or increase intestinal permeability, but I would also take some medicines to fortify, um, fortify the microbiome 
right? Make sure that there's a good balance of good and bad bacteria. Make sure that those bacteria are producing enough of the byproducts that they produce, the vitamins, they produce most of our vitamins, the short chain fatty acids, which will keep that, that immune barrier intact. Um, and then, and then I would make sure that I've weeded out any other pathology that may be going on in the GI tract. Um, like, you know, things you don't know you have, like, uh, low lying infections that you don't know you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth where the bacteria is not supposed to be, um, like, uh, parasites, mm -hmm. like fungal overgrowth in large intestine. I would, I would just make sure all of that is cleaned up. Um, and sort of very comprehensively take a look at the GI tract and heal that, and then start to approach the symptoms of the autoimmune disease itself. So if the autoimmune disease is neurological in nature, um, I would then start looking into another barrier, right? We're, we're looking at the first barrier, the gut barrier, but with people who have a uh, an autoimmune disease that affects the neurological system, then the second thing we're looking at is the blood-brain barrier. Similar sort of barrier, and very vulnerable to the same types of triggers for increased permeability. Or you can look at the vascular barrier, the, the barrier um, in the vascular system and in the, in the capillaries and the arteries and the veins. Um, again, it's probably susceptible to the same types of triggers for like a little bit of leakiness. Um, and then the last thing I might do is I might go on a diet called autoimmune paleo. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, way more hardcore than gluten-free and it's a big decision and usually with autoimmune patients i only suggest an experiment of it of 30 days to 60 days mm -hmm. to uh really notice to really be able to kind of experimentally figure out what your triggers are for the autoimmune disease and then you can go back to a more normal looking diet um some people have to be on it a little longer but you know this diet in the most recent like peer-reviewed clinical trials it's showing you know, mid seventies remission rates for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis without wow. any medical therapies, just the diet alone. So wow. it is a really powerful tool. It's hard for, it's hard for people to do. And that's why you need a physician on your side and a health coach on your side. You need, you know, a functional medicine practice around you really supporting you if you're going to do that kind of experiment. But if I were diagnosed with an autoimmune disease today, I would do it. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. 70%. Yeah. Is that what you said? Mid seventies. Yeah. Wow. There are a couple of studies, but they were all around the mid seventies. Mm -hmm. that's awesome yeah well thank you so much Zandra for, yeah. for being here and for just of sharing course. all of this super helpful information I really appreciate it of course it was really good to talk to you Brittany yeah and if uh some of our listeners were looking for you where would they find you um they can find me on the Parsley Health website my name is Zandra Palma or Alexandra Palma I can be found by both um I'm transitioning all of it over to Zandra since I have two internet names now. Mm -hmm. um, and then my website will be up soon. It's going to be just just kind of me talking about different interesting topics that I like in functional medicine. That'll be ZandraPalma.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. Thank you so much. Take care. This episode was sponsored by NHC, an online vitamin and supplement store that sells a wide variety of quality professional and retail brands. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in, and thanks again to Zandra for joining me today. To listen to more episodes, go to aliveandwellpodcast.com or check us out on SoundCloud or iTunes. You've been listening to the Alive and Well Podcast. We'll see you next time.